this is Orenstein speaking again. I was at Whole Foods the other day. Whole Foods, juice bars, what a lot. Animals everywhere. I was at Whole Foods the other day, and I got startled by a sandhill crane. It came up to me and squawked. That kind of interaction is important. <laughs> <laughs> These are the these are the deep yes. questions in, yes. in the city, in the contemporary city. Hi everyone, welcome to Street Sweeper again. I'm Ricardo. And I'm Will. We have this general idea of making this episode, the follow-up of the, our live coverage of the formation of the first National Union of Architects, of Architectural Workers in Portugal, mm-hmm. um, with uh, an interview of, uh, uh, to, of the like, gang who, who did this. Um, we won't be able to do that today. We, they, they're very busy actually setting up the union. <laughs> so uh, hopefully, like quite soon that that will happen absolutely but uh today we're going to do something else yeah we thought we'd we'd take something off twitter we haven't actually done this before but this is where i guess a lot of podcast material comes from right uh yeah podcasters tend to be on twitter for some reason yeah we're you're 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 on twitter a bit now for us but we're mostly not yeah we're heavy social media users no neither of us is an internet person um but now by like i don't know like it's necessity yeah it's part (laughs) of the job uh we need to be on on the social medias a little bit every once in a while yeah and Uh, it seems like it seems like on twitter there's a basic kind of architectural culture war around traditional architecture versus something like modern architecture although what that is is often pretty vague yeah like i Go, doing, doing the Twitters, uh, I have discovered this kind of fight between trad architecture people and who like essentially think all quote unquote modern architecture is terrible, but which is basically means everything after the 1940s, um, and the, and then and think that con- contemporary architects are just horrible and have lost touch with mm. uh, like what people like and what's good uh and architects defending like basically modernism and brutalism yeah well i know that there's uh, and this goes back to facebook um a lot of social media posting of brutalist architecture yeah there, there is a there is definitely a brutalism architecture trend yeah which is kind of fairly aesthetic yeah. I imagine it, it has a social commentary, like this is architecture of the welfare state, generally speaking. Yeah, there is a kind of... The, the, the brutalist architecture trend has that in a kind of a very abstract sort of implicit association. Mm-hmm. Uh, the debate within, in Twitter is a bit more substantial than that. Like people right. defending modernism and brutalism, etc. have a more a bit deeper understanding of what modernism and brutalism effectively were. Uh, it's not just pure kind of vague liberal nostalgia for the welfare state. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's definitely a kind of a strong... I mean, this is just the the usual culture war, basically. Yeah. Between conservatism 
and something else. Right. It seems like there's a substantial actual left position on this. Yes. What you're describing. Yes. But we're not going to get just into the kind of trad architecture culture war debate in general. No. What we thought was particularly interesting was a debate around a left trad argument. Right. right? Yeah, that was, it, 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 again, this, we, we discovered this a couple of days ago. Um, apparently, current affairs editor, founder and editor-in-chief Nathan J. Robinson, who is a curious fella, uh, if you are familiar <laughs> with him. <laughs> aesthetically. Yes, aesthetically himself, <laughs> who is kind of fine. Like, we only know him from, like, politics, actual politics stuff, right? right? right. And he's, right. I mean, we we disagree on him with him on some stuff, but it's, uh, that's part of the intra-left debate and uh, et cetera. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's normal. Um, it's political argument on what the left is and what it must be doing, blah, blah, blah. But I definitely find his aesthetics, which are kind of, I don't know, 19th century or like early 20th century gentleman, flanner. Yes. Uh, like intellectual in the salon style. Yes. Kind of bizarre and, I don't know. Irritating? Irritating, impractical. <laughs> I mean, affected. There, there is a general... Uh, dress up aesthetic going on in hipster circles of uh, kind yeah. of vague 19th century European stuff. Yeah. That's but across it, left YouTube, like bread, what bread tube or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I think it, it tends to have a kind of right wing connotations. There's kind of this kind of Victorian slash like Bismarckian Prussian uh, <laughs> thing going on, but Nathan Jane Robinson's isn't that exactly. It's a, it's a bit more, uh, a bit less the, um, I don't know, a, 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 a late 19th century uh, industrialist, uh, <laughs> uh, like... Um, uh, Curly moustache. Yeah, that's, it's less that, and yeah. it's more um, just a kind of a happy fella in a cafe, in a kind of bourgeois cafe, uh, mm. just reading a newspaper not talking important stuff smoking a pipe yeah but not in a musky but like a bubble pipe like yes a pipe that just blows bubbles. i mean yeah 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 there's this <laughs> <laughs> no yeah, like smoking a pipe but not in a, a musky smoke room but yeah. outdoor in a in a in a nice cafe in some paris arcade street anyway he really likes trad architecture and has a very trad architecture take. Yeah. And he apparently writes about it several often in yeah. current affairs. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we ran into this via a debate on Twitter against a tweet of current affairs about the most recent yeah, uh, an interview, right? Yeah. article of this, which is an interview, which is what we were going to be talking about. Yeah, I was surprised to learn that he's based in New Orleans because I, I sort of assume that most people on the internet in America are in New York or right. environs. Right. And he's not wearing like a like a white linen suit as, mm -hmm. as I imagine people in New Orleans <laughs> <laughs> given to wearing like bow ties would wear. <laughs> Everyone dresses like Mark Twain. Yeah, that's kind of what I, that's kind of what I picture. At least. <laughs> 
white guys with this yeah. kind of anachronistic aesthetic that with. they will go for a mark twain yeah. not for a yeah weird um, victorian tucker carlson <laughs> <laughs> tucker the carlson, old, the old tucker tucker carlson. carlson now wears uh lumberjack shirts yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. he's he's self-gentrified away from <laughs> he's found the, the new locus of gentrification <laughs> Anyway, uh, this uh, we thought we'd talk about this because it's it's something that people are discussing uh, in left architecture Twitter, and it, and it really does pick up on the themes we're we're covering yeah. in what is uh, right wing architecture. So we've got a few articles from Current Affairs uh, to talk about. Um, the main one that got this discussion going uh, is an interview with. Daniel Orenstein called How to Build Beautiful Places. And this is an interview, yeah, Nathan J. Robinson talking to Daniel Orenstein, uh, mostly covering the thought writing work of uh, an architectural theorist who just died recently, Christopher Alexander, who appropriately enough is Anglo-American. So we've got this main long ass interview from Current Affairs, and then there's a few other. We found a few other articles kind of connected. I guess we're, we're kind of painting a picture of the architectural of the mind palace, uh, Nathan's architectural mind palace. All, right, his ideas right, around architecture, right. and they're not all they're not all whack. No, I mean, and there's something there. There's 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 an underlying point. Yes. Um, so we're not we're not we're going to try to avoid just completely. Uh, yeah, like the uh, the the current affairs uh, Twitter tweet on on this um, on this piece has lots of responses, as you might guess, including from architects that think modernism is not a horrible thing. Yeah, we should say the underlying, maybe just an underlying basic characterization is that it's a critique of modernism. It's a critique of everything that, uh, it's a critique of the concept of modern slash contemporary architecture that doesn't really afford particularly any internal divisions within that. Anything after the 40s till today as a kind of a continu continuum. Yeah, we, we don't, let's not do the actual critique yet, but just to kind of like characterize it. Basically, why are modern slash contemporary cities so bad yeah um and the answer is because architects planners designers are crazy or stupid and don't realize that it all should be good rather than bad yes basically, basically yes <laughs> and there's I mean, something about there's something about modernity or modernism that leads to this kind of stupidity or craziness where like <laughs> the good versus the bad has just completely been, been lost to human consciousness. Right. Right. Um, so we're going to talk about what, how they, you know, decide what is good and what's bad yeah. or whatever. Yeah. I, I, there's, there's responses to this on the level of like, that's what Trump thinks. Yeah. And uh, they're not very good. Uh, right. That's Although not good enough. We did, we did Although actually it is what this. Trump thinks. <laughs> Yeah, and I think there there is an actual like a, an underlying kind of aesthetic crossover, maybe around <laughs> current affairs overall, and, <laughs> or like there's something about the like kind of New Yorker vibe of the whole thing, notwithstanding obviously 
uh, New Orleans or <laughs> Trump's underlying, you know, other aesthetics. Anyway, tell us about this interview. This is a, a particularly uh, juicy, long interview. I'm going to try to limit the amount of stuff I want to read from it. Um, otherwise, it'll take... We're going to just do a one-part episode today, I think. Oh, Jesus, please. Um, no. Yeah, we can't do a two-parter <laughs> on this. But I, I read the main interview and Rick read, I read a couple, uh, other, a couple other ones. So we're kind of just going to bounce this material off each other and talk through it, right? Yeah. So one of the first, uh, well, they introdu they introduce the interview as being a discussion of Christopher Alexander, who, as I mentioned, was, a, uh, I think, originally born in Austria, fled the Holocaust, um, or fled the rise of Nazism in the late 30s, um, studied, studied kind of science and architecture, was actually the first graduate of a PhD program in architecture at Harvard in the, in the early 60s, which is pretty interesting to us because we're, you know, thinking about when, how this academic... When does academia start and with what ideology? Yeah, and with what ideology and what conditions. Um, he, he's apparently a big, uh, big guy in computer programming circles, mm. um, which is kind of an interesting, gives a kind of interesting duality because he's kind of an ultra-naive architecture thinker. Um, and it's something that they they talk about, they value in his work is this kind of, he has a kind of childlike mm -hmm. naivete in how he questions yeah. uh, assumptions. But he's, he's the title of his book, which uh, uh, Nathan J. Robinson says he's, it's his favorite nonfiction book. Oh, wow. Is a Pattern Language, Towns, Buildings, Construction. Right. So you can see a right. pattern language. Oh, oh, it's, it's, it's getting, it's, it, uh, to be honest, it's, it's not uncommon for... Uh, computer internet uh, architecture people to like naive uh, takes on the city. <laughs> True. I mean, the... Uh, but explicitly anti-technological is an interesting twist. That's true, but I mean... Uh, what's her name? Uh, the lady that invented <laughs> gentrification. Jane Jacobs. I'm keeping that in. That's true, uh, but like... Uh, I, Jane Jacobs, it's Jane Jacobs anti-technological too? Not really, but she's, a little bit. But I think again, I think a bit, a little bit that she's extremely influential. She's, in, she has a skepticism. Yeah, and she's super like she dominates space syntax, for example. Like, uh, mm. there, there's something. Maybe this is the theme for another episode at some point. But there's something, some kind of inter interesting ideological crossover between 1960s critiques of modernism. Yeah. Uh, like naive. Uh, Critiques of modernism and um, computer architecture ideology. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's part of the, just the larger postmodern shift, which is simultaneously anachronistic and historicist, as well as being increasingly digital. Right. Um, to, to me, there's a deep, deep Anglo-Americanism. Oh, 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 thing, oh, yeah. I mean, to which me, has even, a, even deeper even as a non-Anglo-American. <laughs> <laughs> All of this shit is unbelievably white. It's, it's so white that it, I, I can't count as white in this. It's, it's not, it, it's, it's specifically Anglo, I think, is, is what it is. Because it has this, um, I mean, it reminds me of kind of, uh, was a common language philosophy? These kinds of British-American philosophical movements that focus on like plain speech right 
and on it, they even actually mentioned in the interview that at one point i think it was while, while he was actually studying architecture alexander asked a very simple question actually i can just read in a biography written about alexander called christopher alexander the search for a new paradigm in architecture He's quoted talking about how when he was an undergraduate studying architecture at Cambridge, he got interested in the question, quote, what makes a place beautiful? So what makes a place really pleasant to look at and be in? Why do we return to certain buildings? Why do they get put on postcards? Why do people travel the world to see a certain beautiful buildings, but they don't travel to see, you know, a business park in suburban Florida? This is from the from the interview that's not all i love that florida is the reference for beauty yeah beauty. ornstein is based <laughs> uh, is like a an urban engineer based in sarasota uh florida which is like a retirement postmodern retirement zone nathan robinson says it's where he uh grew up in florida sarasota florida. Sar- sarasota florida sarasota 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 is a different american thing but carcosa is a Again, a different thing. Carcosa? Yeah. Sartosa is where pirates are. Carcosa is where the Yellow King is from. Okay. <laughs> anyway, that actually also might be in Florida. I don't remember. <laughs> Apparently, he took this uh, simple but profound question, what makes places beautiful? And when and asked a prominent positivist philosopher at like Oxford or something, and the guy couldn't give him a, 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 a simple answer, you'll be surprised to hear. Oh, no. <laughs> and said that it must be, <laughs> the answer must be something to do with language or some nonsense. Which, mm-hmm. But the fact that he would even go to a positive philosopher to ask a question like that um, is like peak Anglo naivete slash, my, my words are failing me trying to describe like the, this. The, the philosophical principle of this. It's, it's, it's deep capital L liberalism. Exactly. Yeah. But at the same time, it's just basically the same type of discussion and argument as like, there's only two genders prove otherwise science facts, mm. right? It's 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 just like, ob- like the simplicity of like objective beauty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. the same yeah. thing. Like norm- normative. Yeah. Extremely normative. It's the same thing. Like don't yeah. don't come at me with these complexities and like talking me to to me about no this it's, this is simple. Are yeah. you a boy or a girl? <laughs> Is it, be- is it a beautiful place or is it an ugly place? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So we, we've established that, yes, it is philosophically reactionary, but that doesn't mean that Nathan J. Robinson has a Trump ideology, although it kind of does. No, and I think there's, there's something... <laughs> I, <laughs> it's a typical, like, is Nathan J. Robinson... And do Nathan J. Robinson has a Trump ideology. Short answer, no. Long answer, Yes. <laughs> That's one of my favorite memes. Yeah. <laughs> That's like a great dialectical meme. All the best memes are dialectical. <laughs> the, uh, the interview also makes reference, just in trying to set up what the whole idea that Christopher Alexander developed or what, why they find him so, why or- Ornstein and Smau here find him so like, uh, uh, interesting or influential to them. Uh, another quotation. So people like Adam Curtis observe that today we have very few ideas of what a good future should be like. These days, a lot of old ideas have run their course, but ideals like the world you see in Star Trek, these types of utopian ideas, 
It's hard to imagine a new future where humans are happy, a world that's beautiful, that's worth living in, that fits well together, where people have meaning and belonging. And I think Christopher Alexander is one of the key thinkers we need in order to get to that new kind of world, a world we can imagine even in this modern era of total fragmentation. So this is the this is the typical like what we really need is a new imaginary uh-huh. argument, which is yep. the primary uh, potion yep. sold by. Uh, I don't know, podcasters other than us <laughs> and people in the culture industry generally. Um, and even in the politics. Even in the politics, yeah. Sometimes sometimes I think it's fine when it's just connected to a larger, more material political movement or, or a goal. Like thinking about, let's say, anti-imperialist solidarity. Like we need to imagine, like I've heard uh, Vijay Prashad or like Tricontinental talk about like the need to imagine uh, a, a world that's not just the Western world. Basically. Sure. Like, sure. So I, I can understand the power of this kind of argument. Ideological in, proposition. Ideological proposition in some contexts. But what makes this uh, particularly so, so contradictory is that the majority of this interview is a critique of modernism and a critique of utopianism. And they begin with the premise that what we need is a utopia. Right. And then the rest of the interview is basically criticizing utopianism for all its failures. Right. And that what people should really be doing is looking at the everyday and the simple <laughs> details that are all around us. Yep. Take a donkey to T- the village. Take the donkey to the village. And uh, smell the flowers. Smell the flowers along the way. <laughs> you mentioned earlier that one of the one of the striking things about this is that there there isn't really a clear definition and this is just an interview and this is not like a, a thoroughly developed argument. So we don't want to be too, but it's never going to be even when he's trying to, no, no, it's, this is a, an inherent contradiction in the argument. Uh, modernism's not developed basically. Yeah. Nothing between the thirties and now, now, uh, changed within architecture. Yeah. Um, it's all basically modernism right up to the present. They talk about postmodernism, but that what that means it just means historicist uh, style. Right. Um, we obviously, as we've discussed, have a have a different understanding of how to periodize this stuff. But as an example, they kind of after this idea of on the beautiful and the imaginary, they move to how Alexander really uh, sets off his position in contrast to the mainstream in architecture. So here's another quotation. Alexander has this incredible debate from 1982 with the Yale architecture professor Peter Eisenman where they really go at each other because Alexander talks about the importance of harmony and joy in architecture and Eisenman talks about the importance of discord and disharmony. Eisenman says the universe is a fundamentally chaotic place and architecture has to reflect that. Alexander is horrified by this and accuses accuses Eisenman of quote fucking up the world, <laughs> <laughs> and we're on we are, Alexander's we are, side. Yes, in this absolutely, debate, obviously, right. <laughs> uh, but the, what makes this weird is that they set this up as Alexander's critique of modernism. Yes, and Eisenman, the quintessential postmodernist. But he's a he's neo modernist, postmodernist though. Yeah, and you have to actually know something about yes postmodernism and yes. modernism yes. to see this difference. Yes, yeah. Um, you would have to think about 
I mean, first of all, you would have to think about architecture as more than just language, which, yeah, which obviously frames the way these people think, like the way Nathan J. Robinson thinks about architecture as being precise coincidence with how Eisenman thinks about architecture. Yeah, yeah, and in exact antithesis to how modernists think about yeah. architecture. This is an inter-postmodernist debate. Yes, basically, um, uh, and we would be. Yeah, tactically on Alexander's side against Eisenman. Yes. I mean, we'd be against Eisenman probably on, on every kind of debate. Yes. But yeah, this is, I mean, this is the, they they talk about Eisenman. Eisenman comes up a few times as representative, supposed representative of modernism. Uh, Korb also comes up. Mm-hmm. There's just some kind of basic mischaracterizations yeah, of Korb, like Korb never thought about human proportion. Of course not. When... The he never thought about the, anything else. Yeah, you know, he this is apparent. This is his, like one of his central emphasis. Um, the modular is always his human proportions, though. Right, right. He's the ideal human. He's just him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's. I mean, you have the the critique of Korb would be around that this kind of like personal distortion. Yeah, um, and but also the principle's just the lim- the fine. Limits. Yeah. The principle's fine, and also the limits of of Korb's version of modernism sure. uh, in the West. Sure. Whatever. Another example of this kind of misunderstanding of modernism, uh, they're describing, you know, bad architecture in suburban Florida, um, which I'm sure is is very bad. Quote, Alexander noted that there are all these elements in the built environment that don't make any sense. I'll give an example. And this is uh, Orenstein speaking. I was at a juice bar this morning up in Lakewood Ranch in a commercial strip mall. And this shop is facing due south. So you get the southern sun. It blasts quite a bit from the south. It's clear they're at war with the sun because the windows are tinted, the shades drawn in front of all of them. So to keep the sun from getting in, there are these faux awnings. They're really tiny and really narrow. They're not thick enough to provide shelter. You couldn't stand underneath them to protect yourself from the rain. And they're so narrow and so elevated that they don't provide any shade. If you had a real awning that actually did prevent the direct sun from getting into the space, they wouldn't need the tinting and the window shades. So you have a cartoon of an awning that isn't serving the building well. What Alexander did is point out that these little details that may have been copied a million times that no one else thought critically about and that make cities poorly adapted to themselves. In a larger sense, he he has a critique of the idea of limitless subjectivity or relativism just by pointing out that there's such a thing as good and bad design. There are things that are fit for purpose and things that aren't. And it's not all subjective. That's great. That's modernism. That's literally modern. Modernism That's literally says, modernism. Modernism says, don't face a glass facade towards yeah. the sun without passive shading. Yeah, yeah. Orient your buildings to optimize sunlight. Yeah. Do passive shading to get direct exposition to sunlight in the winter and no expo- no direct exposition during during exposure, the, yeah. exposure during the summer yeah minimize heating like modernism was thinking about carbon emissions before there were carbon emissions as a thing to yeah. be discussed yeah. purely on the basis of optimizing and rationalizing construction to be more humane in the age of mass production that was the fucking point yeah yeah and th- and this like Critique of subjectivity. I mean, it it began with the question of the beauty and the imaginary. Right. Now we're just at like, why don't architects think about program and function? Yes. (laughs) In this critique of modernism. (laughs) (laughs) 
But then in the next paragraph is, I mean, I don't know, I didn't read that interview, you did the interview, but I've seen him say like the opposite, like they only think about function first, functionalism. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's another example, they're criticizing a library in, in New York that I'm sure is worth, I mean, the critique is totally legit. It, it looks like a, you know, a kind of typical star architecture, uh, monumental library. Sure. They say that it was designed uh, basically to be photographed and to be like to win competitions in architecture. Which he thinks that the left in architecture, these are critiques that the left in architecture that likes modernism. Yeah. Also these makes. are the these yeah. are important critiques, right? Yeah. These are critiques of star architecture. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit pro- it's a little bit questionable to begin with the question why what like we can unlock the secret to architecture if we can figure out what makes some buildings uh photographable for postcards like if the whole premise was we need the postcard architecture it's a bit hard to to mesh this with uh like why do tourists visit some buildings and not others oh the buildings shouldn't be about tourism or postcards they should be about the people there is an interesting tension in him uh which I think is paradigmatic. Like, and I think it's also because his senior head honcho of a magazine, so he he publishes for a living, right? Yeah. Um, but basically, he he he's a flanner, and he wants the arcades. Mm. He wants interesting arcades all over somewhere. Like, it's, yeah, he's not too restrictive on what it needs to look like, but it needs to function as the arcades. Right. Um. Which is like the whole, like, I get into a little corner and have a little experience and blah, blah, blah. And it's about walking around and discovering little things that appear out of nowhere. And uh, and everything is like a new ex- sensorial experience for me, the full middle class flanner, to walk about the city, right? Yeah. Um, and that sort of is against the mass... mass uh, easily mass reproducible, uh, iconic ph- photograph for of of the star architecture building because you you it, it's it's about moving in space and uh, it's about precisely what Le Corbusier talked about <laughs> right. which is the promenade architecturale right you are experiencing space as you are uh, moving through it it, it it can't be just a static image and blah 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 right um but then he publishes static images yeah the images i mean the the lead image and they're all basically interview. disneyland yeah, the lead image on this interview is like some European city with some old cottages and like right. a medieval wall fragment. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's like, why doesn't, uh, you know, why isn't Florida building cities like this? Right. Like they sh- get in their time machine. It is. Build it. It's called yeah, it is. Disneyland. It's called Disneyland. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, he lives in uh, New Orleans. You were telling me he lives in yeah. New Orleans in the in the French Quarter. In the French Quarter, quarter which is the tourist yeah. district. Yeah. So he lives in Disneyland. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's it's he he's not really. I mean, this is not really a deep deep thinking piece, obviously. And there's no political economy. No. Uh, so there's barely how, a, sometimes there's a bit of politics that appears there with the kind yeah. of a vague concept of democracy, which is like yeah. people don't like the architecture that architects do. We need more democracy, and in socialism, it will be people to decide what architects do. Yeah, which we agree. Which, which we agree with. But people is not what he thinks people is. <laughs> no, and this critique that he's articulating 
is part of a, an elite critique within architecture. And it's the, it's the driving elite critique basically of the last 50 years in the reactionary, general reactionary turn in architecture. So this is not, this is not, I mean, there is a, there's a potential for a popular version of this critique, but it's functioning along the same lines as the, as the general kind of reactionary right. neoliberal line on architecture right. and against modernism. A great example of this naivete in uh, Christopher Alexander's work, quote, When you open Alexander's book, A Pattern Language, and start flicking through, one of the first things that surprises you is that this is a guide to the elements that are needed to make great places, but it has this bizarre and surprising mixture of things. You see things about how to design walkable cities and good roofs, but then there are suggestions like old people everywhere, it says a good city should have a mix of ages, lots of old people about. I mean, if you live in, in Sarasota, then you're, you're experiencing a great city on these terms. One of the recommendations is, quote, a carnival. <laughs> or, quote, dancing in the street. <laughs> My favorite is, quote, child caves. Any good space should have smaller spaces that are only accessible to children because children love to have a little cave they can go in. They can make one with the couch pillows. No, this is like in the, in the subway station, there should be a child cave. That seems incredibly dangerous. In the, in the <laughs> I don't know, in the, in the cafe, there should be a child cave. What about like a rat cave? In the, in the pizza parlor, there should be a child cave. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Another suggestion, <laughs> continuing, another suggestion in a pattern language is animals everywhere. And this is... Uh, the Orenstein. rat cave. Rat cave. <laughs> <laughs> Bat cave, rat cave. <laughs> uh, this is, this is Orenstein speaking again. I was at Whole Foods the other day. Whole Foods, juice bars, what a lot. Animals everywhere. I was at Whole Foods the other day and I got startled by a sandhill crane. It came up to me and squawked. That kind of interaction is important. <laughs> <laughs> these are the these are the deep yes. questions in yes. in the city, in yes. the contemporary city. Yeah, there's a general like let the meat cake vibe to the whole it's thing. It's incredibly let the meat cake. Uh, like basically I don't like that uh, the the city is shitty and poor people um, have shitty lives in the city. They should just be rich instead of poor. Exactly. Um, architects should have uh, make you know should just have more money to make whatever they want and make it all nicer than they do. Everything should there should just be more money flowing into like everything all the time. Yeah, like the the article I've read is called "Why Doesn't California Solve Its Housing Crisis by Building Some New Cities?" Okay by Nathan Jonathan Poppycock. There shouldn't be a housing crisis in California. It's not like California is full. <laughs> <laughs> Good analysis. The, <laughs> the state's land is vast and mostly sparsely populated. Okay. Most Californians live in and around the state's few big urban centers. Los Angeles, San Francisco, San Diego, San Jose, Sacramento. In these cities, housing is insanely expensive. Right. 
the median house price in Los Angeles is around $800,000, which will buy you an extremely modest single-family home. A one-bedroom apartment in San Francisco costs $3,300 a month. And surprisingly, because the rent is too damn high, the homeless population in the state has exploded. Right. And there are enough homeless people in California, 160,000, to mm. populate an entire city of their own. Right. Therefore, let's make all let's... houses like incredibly expensive <laughs> palaces. Yeah. That's going to solve the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then... And, and then it just goes on into, like, why don't they build new cities? And it's, right. it, it really is the parady- paradigm. I think this is also because it's California and it's you know, a super liberal democratic state, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the democratic... I mean, why do the California Democrats not do anything good that they supposedly want to do? Yeah, like, they, they're, do? They're, 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 it's a liberal electoral base population. It's Democrats. So the only reason why they wouldn't fix the problem is because of they're like, they're not thinking straight. Right, right. right. They're so confused. They're just confused. There's an yeah. ideological. And then, and then there's, gr- there's a groupthink. And he explicitly, <laughs> explicitly says that the problem is ideology. Yeah. There's an ideological blockage against uh, building new cities or and uh, doing uh, investments. And to his credit, okay. he talks about how um, the idea of building new towns, which has historically been a solution for uh, yeah. uh, the needs for uh, like extra population, t- so as to not overclog existing metropolises. Yeah. And he does he gives the example of the United Kingdom uh, during the welfare state period, right? Not just like he talks about contemporary China, socialism in general, and uh, he talks about the UK. Um, he then like, then says the reason why we're not doing this is because we have this ideological conditioning against anything that looks like planning. Okay, that includes the state as an important uh, right. agent, right. right? And this is why we're not doing it. Okay. And we need to kind of get rid of this ideology. Yeah. Now, this, this is, is good this is and like bad. A Keynes, this is a kind of contemporary Keynesian position, basically. Yeah, but assuming that the Democratic Party in California uh, is actually like well-meaning and would do this well, yeah. if they weren't but ideologically this is, this is, blocked this themselves. Is the, this is the vulgar Keynesian position, in, or just the Keynesian Yeah, that you can, you can convince contemporary capitalist managers that, if, that turning to Keynesianism would yeah. be better for them, too. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just the argument that Keynesianism worked. We stopped doing it because we were stupid. Yeah. And we're continuing to not do it, even though it's better for capital and for everyone else. And yeah. just for some reason, we're just stupid and not doing it. Yeah. That's how, that's how Keynesians yeah. understand the situation. Yeah. So it's, it, what, what here doesn't appear, but in here, the, the, the deficiencies in his critique are, are coincide with a lot with deficiencies that we detect in the architectural left itself in general. Like mm. we can propose a, and we just we can propose a solution uh, that has political economic consequences, and we realize that. But we just need to convince the political economic powers uh, to do this. Yeah. Right. We need to change policy. Right. Um, so we, this is a fer- perfectly this is a perfectly straightforward standard mistake, which is no, you you can't convince the government to do this. 
the federal government in the United States or a state government in California or anywhere else in the or Western world. Or contemporary world. British government. Yeah, yeah, or anywhere else on, in, the, in the first world. Uh, there's no such thing as convincing a government to do this because the entire economy is based on an inflationary uh, spike yeah. in, in rental estate. prices, yeah. in, re in rents and, uh, and in the value asset of land. Yeah. Yeah, so asset values. And uh, therefore, you cannot increase the number of assets, the amount of assets on the market too much, or else we're going to devalue it. You need to always be underproducing on purpose. There is no way that yeah. contemporary monopoly capitalism will allow you to build a new city. Even if you, you, you might think, but this is a business opportunity because like the state uh, produces the infrastructure and then the, the private developers can develop and parts of it and, and, and it attracts people and the state gives money to people to, 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 to go there and blah, blah, blah. And they like, but no, 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 no. You, you can't solve the housing crisis. It, it yeah. needs to exist because it's the organic expression of the need to push prices high, period. Yeah. Yeah. So no new cities and no uh, housing in existing cities either. It needs to, yeah. only a very limited needs amount. to explode. It yeah. cannot stop exploding. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, we would agree just in the general sense that there should be new cities or that planning. Absolutely, should, yeah. But this is, this is what's so strange because this is a fairly, I mean, this is a good and fairly standard and it's basically our underlying position on the need for this kind of shift to planning. We have a, a, a you know, a different understanding of the contradictions yeah. and the the role of real estate and financialization and rentierism and all this shit, uh, which explains why they're not doing it as you went yeah. through. Um, but what's strange is to com is that he combines that critique with this critique of modernism. Yes, uh, and this focus on like the need to fo like another passage um quote what alexander was striving for was that architects should love their buildings like parents love their children every detail of the building every windowsill the door handles there should be that much attention to detail and care all over the different items of a building like this is incompatible with dealing with the scale of the problems yeah obviously. i mean obviously like the he talks about the scale of the problems and then seamlessly transitions into why can't every house of every person be a really, really nice cottage? Yeah, that they made by that somebody made by hand with yeah. like it, it's quite crafted, it, it's quite striking uh, sometimes. Like he talks about how life in the modern city is horrible. Uh, there's True. no um, pedestrian scale. Yeah. There's no like people start like he talks about LA. People are stuck in traffic for a million years to get yeah. to work and back. Yeah. Uh, and then he says, but high rises are bad. Uh, yeah. And we need like houses <laughs> and low density. Yeah. yeah, I mean, obviously, <laughs> like, like he he it, he needs the city to look a certain way, right? And to be experienced experienced in a certain way, yeah. And the two are in direct contradiction with each other, mm. uh, because his notion of the urban experience of living in the city is as a flaneur, and he doesn't he can't think that like. People need to live in a place and work in another place and move about. He sees the negative consequences of that, but he doesn't. He's incapable of thinking in the terms of what an operative solution is to this problem. Yeah, which is, I mean, he's correct about pedestrian scale yep. neighborhood units, which is was a, a concept invented by modernist planning, <laughs> and uh, uh, of the more Soviet variety. I mean, 
the West as well. Like the notion of a, of a neighborhood unit was kind of part of modernist internationalism to a significant extent. Like Cor Corp was not very good on this, but you like Brasilia is based on uh, neighborhood units. Everyone says Brasilia is a, a city made for the car. Yeah, but like you can replace that car with a railway. Like the, even the plan is exactly the same. It's actually a city made for uh, because it's a program commuting. At the C commuting scale. is based at the car, but uh, all everything else is pedestrian scale. Mm. It's a neighborhood unit basis. The mega uh, mega blocks are neighborhood units that have all the necessary services and commerce uh, located at the at the pedestrian scale level. I guess, I guess the, part of the specificity of this critique is its American context, where modernism was at its very worst. Basically. True, true. Where the welfare state was at its weakest, right? Um, and where the dominance of cars was greatest. Yeah. And, uh, so, and I mean, this is similar with uh, Jane Jacobs' critique that, like, a lot of her critiques are legit because she's sure. she's talking about the worst yep. examples of quote unquote modernism you could probably find, like, even of anywhere social modernism, as in, like, even even social housing in America is worse than equivalent right. programs in Europe. Yeah, yeah, and and the, and, 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 the, and there we would we would still defend it as having been positive, but yeah. As with the but people with who lived there until they were brutally until removed brutal. by the police exactly. in like Cabrini Green. <laughs> exactly. Just on this, like, let them eat cake point, they talk about the importance of handcrafting. Uh, and they're, they're talking about uh, Christopher Alexander's trip to Mexico City and seeing the uh, tiled house or the house of tiles. I don't know. I mean, it looks like a Porto uh, church, basically. Um Quote, yes, Alexander points to the process. They're talking about how, how beautiful this, even though it's, it, the tiles are all hand-painted and imperfect and up close it doesn't look that crisp or like if it was mechanized, you could have a much more perfect tile. Mm -hmm. But still the aggregate of all the handmade tiles is very beautiful and mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Alexander points to the process, how ideas, plans, paintings are generated. I am drinking out of a hand-painted teacup right now and it's more meaningful that way. <laughs> I I just love this kind of like uh, throw-ins throw from Orenstein. They're amazing. <laughs> His tea. I mean, I'm drinking tea from a non-hand-painted cup right now, and I guess it's less meaningful. <laughs> I mean, I'm not attaching any special meaning to it. I have to admit. This this all meaning is very expensive. Meaning is expensive. I mean. Certain kinds of meaning are anyway. I was going to say this. This whole thing just reminds me of uh, the tragic case of William Morris and the whole and the arts and crafts movement. The tragic the... case of William Morris sounds like the title of a short story that Nathan J. Robinson would like to read. <laughs> it's like it. It, it sounds like um. It sounds like a um, like you know one of those like. Like it's a short story in a in a short story collection book, okay. Um, that has like little frou frous in the corners of the pages and like little has decorations, like, illustrations. Yeah, and it has like a uh, like little hand drawn pictures of like rabbits and uh, <laughs> like talking to each other, and it's like you know like this kind of like yeah uh, children book thing, but for adults. Yeah, in like a nice kind of a hardcover with felt. Yes, and gold. Yes. Gold filigree text yes. on it. 
Yes, yes. And, it's, and one of the stories is called The Tragic <laughs> Case of William Morris. <laughs> and Nathan J. Robinson would totally love this book. Yeah, that's true. It'd be his favorite fiction. His favorite fiction. <laughs> yeah, William Morris, 19th century, late 19th century, founder of the arts and crafts movement mm-hmm. uh, in Britain, had a critique of the effects of the industrial era on... Uh, the built environment and kind of the life of working people. Yeah. This was basically this argument, right? The importance of uh, handmade craftsmanship, how the transition to early industrial production um, produced inferior products and an inferior working environment. Mm-hmm. So working people who are experiencing increased exploitation in the factory are also... Uh, receiving inferior commodities that weren't produced by hand. So William Morris, as an architect and designer, uh, the arts and crafts movement was to produce um, quality, everyday objects, affordable to working people, made without exploitative machine production, basically. But what Morris discovered was that the costs of that production made the commodities too expensive for working people to buy. So he was he was actually just <laughs> producing luxury mm-hmm. commodity versions of the same product. Surprise. So Morris actually had to start introducing uh, industrial production methods inside his own workshops. Mm-hmm. And that created like political social crisis within his production. <laughs> and he ended up, it is just a manifestation of the yeah. basic contradiction. Yeah. And this is like, this is just what happened a hundred years ago. Yes. Uh, and has already been demonstrated. Yes. And we're still talking about the same thing. This problem has been later. solved. This problem was solved. <laughs> Negatively. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, other article I've read is called, When is the revolution Archi- in architecture coming? Well, I, I'd like to know. And he says, We need to build places we can't stop looking at. It will involve lots of plants. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, that's a certain literary style. I mean, I, 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 I like plants and I think there should be lots of plants. Yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure about the whole we can't stop looking at. I don't think that's where the revolution in architecture is, but whatever. Uh, so the, the, the article starts, something is terribly wrong with architecture. Hmm. Nearly everything being built is boring, joyless, and or ugly, even though there is no reason it has to be. The architectural profession rewards work that is pretentious and bland. Hmm. The cities we build are not wondrous. They're not wondrous. No. Ooh, that cuts me. I have documented it at length before with links. But Man, the problem, why does no one listen? <laughs> but the problem can be seen at a glance. Okay. Of course. And so here's the glance. And the glance is the following. He shows a series of examples of wondrous architecture. Okay. Here is a classic work of Islamic architecture. And it's kind of a gorgeous uh, ceiling. Coffered in, kind of. Or yeah, in probably. This is, I think, it's probably Alhambra. Not in covered, Granada. I'm, I think this is Alhambra in Granada, but I may be wrong. Here is a Japanese temple and garden. You can imagine what it looks like. Beautiful. Very pretty. Here is an 8th century Hindu temple in Indonesia. You can also imagine what it looks Amazing. like. Here is the lobby of the Guardian building in Detroit with mosaic patterns designed by the innovative ceramic artist Mary Chase Perry. It's pretty cool. It looks cool too, kind of, right? Yeah, Art Deco Aztec thing. Yeah, exactly. It's cool. Here is Venice. Boring. 
<laughs> this is the worst. This is the most cliche now. of the Yeah, examples. this is boring. Yeah. The other ones are fine. This one's boring. Uh, and an Italian coastal villas. Boring. <laughs> it's, it's, These are it, basically postcards, I should say, these images. Yeah, this the yeah. Venice and the Italian coastal image is In totally particular. super postcard. Yeah. It's it's yeah. incredible tourist trap bullshit. Yeah. Um, and Italian coastal village like annoys me because this is like an incredibly terrible urban fabric where everyone dies of dysentery at thirty five. That's what it is. But it's now painted more nicely, and it's like all and for it's choice. a tourist, yeah, yeah, a tourist spot. Yeah, but that's not the historical reality of this. Um, I mean, obviously. And here are a couple of works ah. by the greatest architect who ever lived, Antoni Gaudi, that? whose work should have but did not become the jumping off point for architecture's continued development. Well. There, there are the progressive elements of Gaudi actually were influential. Mm. Um, Gaudi, uh, Gaudi's um, La Pedrera has the domino, the, the Corbusier domino system. It's a concrete uh, structure of uh, pillars and slabs, slabs. Uh, and um, it reduces the structure to that so that he then can do a, a free plan in his uh, interiors. But anyway, whatever. He doesn't like organization and structure and throw around. He likes facades. Um, Unless he's taking some time to actually think about a social problem around architecture, then he realizes we need new town planning uh, of the most yeah, but then he's, modernist but, kind. Uh, yes, but then he eats the garden cities, of course. Oh, yeah. The, yeah, the yeah. new towns need to be Ebenezer Howard. Right, right. Which, again, is a problem that we already dealt with and yeah. solved. Yeah. So it's just like several pictures of Gaudi. Here's mm. a Chinese pavilion at the end. Okay. Nice. Right. Very, very pretty. We should Everything all live in a great. cathedral. Every, every person their That's, own cathedral. That, that'd be the point. Now let us examine works. This, this is just literally a, a list of pictures he puts, puts there. Like, look at all these beautiful things yes. that once upon a time we were able to do. Yes. Now let us examine works by some of the recent winners of the Pritzker Prize. Okay. The highest award in architecture. The prize winners are, theoretically, the greatest architects of our time, mm. producing the most celebrated work of the year. Mm. These works are thus the best humanity has to offer at the moment. Okay. First picture. It's the Lacatel Vassal uh, uh, block extension thing, right? I think so. Um, the key point here is this is an apartment block. Yeah. So let's put this in the context of the previous ones. And like, one of these is not like the others. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As in, what is the equivalent of this apartment block of the same historical context of <laughs> the, all of the palaces and temples he showed us? Yeah, like a mud uh, slum, basically. A mud slum where, again, people die of dysenteria at 25. Yeah. Not even 35. And where all, all the wealth, aggregate wealth produced in the society is... Uh, consumes Precisely. and produces those Precisely. beautiful pagodas and Precisely. temples. And, Precisely. And that's why everybody's poor and living in the one, uh, hovels. The good architecture is when massive appropriation of surplus is put into architecture. Yes. Yeah. That's it. And doesn't find its way back to ordinary people exactly. in any way. If it finds its way back to ordinary people in some way, like, for example, apartment blocks, so that yeah. people have, working class has for the first time in their lives running water... That be bad, or in this case, taking a, probably a fairly you know rundown, large that was pretty good for slab the time. block, which had been good but needs needs refurbishment, and you know 
using clever uh, winter garden thing to increase the size of the flats and make them a bit nicer and all with attention to sun shading and climatic conditions right, and sustainability right, and quality of right, life. And right. I mean, that, as far as Pritzker awards go, this is probably the best one. This is, I in, mean, in recent is, decades, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I think I only like two Pritzkers, ever. One is them. Yeah. The other is these years, mm. which also is problematic when he started becoming uh, famous and doing museums in Berlin. But up till then, he was doing yeah. really nice stuff. Well, yeah, that's and that's just like, that's the program. Yeah, exactly. That's the and exactly. that's the conditions of the discipline. Yeah. Uh, but then, like. This is the first in the image of contemporary architecture and how dreary it is. Yeah. It's an apartment block. But then he starts showing uh, things that are approaching the scale of the, the program of Palace again. That's, the, uh, that's a, another Lacaton Vassal yeah, architecture school, I think. Yeah. And then it's just like, like middle class flats, this one. Yeah, that's like it. And then just public programs that are in yeah. kind of a neo-brutalist aesthetic, neo contemporary neo-brutalist thing. It's like museums yeah. or libraries or whatever. It doesn't say what they are, uh, and I don't know them. Generic Isozaki building. Yeah, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The last one is... I think that's Elemental, that last one. Yeah, it's uh, Aravena Angelini Innovation Center. It was called by the Pritzker jury, he says. Uh, remarkably humane and inviting, and it looks like a bunker. And he says, like, are these people fucking insane? Uh, how is this humane and inviting? Uh, you look at it, it, it looks like a World War II bunker. So I, I get his point. But then again, I, and I think it, to, to some credit must be given to Nathan J. Robinson here, uh, how, like, he's kind of doing the narrative of, what, of how we got to the present day in architecture, like there's like all these wonderful, beautiful architectures of the past that came from incredible, massive appropriation of surplus from work, from the working classes of the time to the yeah. ruling class, and we are looking only at the architecture of the ruling class and yeah. pretend we're just looking at their jewelry and their, exactly their treasure troves. exactly yeah exactly yeah. Um, and how nice it was and then suddenly there's an apartment building that is modernist that has been refurbished recently but whatever the point is it's an apartment this, this is the era where yeah. things were good in the world this was the best period in the human history basically for ordinary people for ordinary people um, and it produced and it seeded it it seeded the uh, the what he qualifies as modern architecture as this continuum that goes on until today. And architecture has never been able to be free of this, even in the time in in the period of today when we're back to the fucking palaces and <laughs> yeah, yeah. and the programs, the public programs, the social housing, the schools, the hospitals, the healthcare centers. We stopped worrying about that shit for the peasants, yeah. and now we're back to massive appropriation of surplus for the ruling class and building palaces. Why do the palaces have to fucking look, look like, apartment like an apartment building? <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to Chinese pavilions and, uh, and, yeah, uh, and gothic cathedrals. Yes, and, uh... please. I want to be happy in my incredibly wealthy urban center, uh, and I want to not have to think about people living in the slums. I don't want to have slum style in my public ruling class buildings. <laughs> <laughs> Not to mention, we haven't brought this up as well. Like, I mean, his solution is always just increase the resources allocated to a building by a hundred. hundred percent. Yeah. No, by a hundred, a hundred times more expensive. Oh, a hundred times. It's not. It's not double, two times more expensive. No, his no, solution. No, no, no. His solution is like a hundred times more expensive. Yeah. And also, 
a hundred times higher carbon footprint. Right. Like what he's proposing, first of all, like the low rise, the fetishization of the low rise villagey thing, I, that just means more automobile traffic, more, uh, I mean, more, more transport in general, like increase, that means increasing distances. Yeah. So I'm sorry, uh, you're, you're just saying burn the fuel. Even if it's yeah. trains and way more efficient, you still should go for uh, more density. More density. Uh, the, uh, the 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 complete blindness to the ecological environmental uh, dimension of what he's talking about is completely uh, yeah. completely uh, invisible to him. The other the other connected to this is uh, ignorance on the. On, on the on wages for construction workers right like what he's talking about is why can't we reduce the wages of construction workers tenfold so that it's cheap so that manual labor is cheap enough that we can just hire a bunch of starving workers to come and build a whole building from the ground up and that's the same price as building with modern construction techniques like i learned in architecture school I love. Have I told this story before? I don't think so. When I was when I was an architecture student many years ago, doing design. Maybe you did. Well, I don't. Uh, <laughs> I loved masonry. I was. I was. I mean, my whole interest in architecture probably had some reactionary character to begin with, and I'm and as I, most people. As most people's, and I've been digging myself out <laughs> of that hole uh, for for. Not many me though. Years. I wanted to build housing, modernist housing from the get go. Well, you're a very special boy. I'm a very you? special boy. <laughs> I really loved I really loved masonry, uh, primarily brick. This was in Canada, so brick. Uh, you know, there's some different stones in Ottawa and Toronto, whatever. Anyway, uh, brick. So I was I was researching, you know, vaulting and and different kinds of brick arches and different kinds of different, you know, ways to do brick coursing. And I and I all I wanted to do was like basically design brick. Mm-hmm. And I was interested in in masonry statics, so I wanted not just to do brick pattern, but I actually wanted the building to be have right. a brick structure. Right. Um, and I thought masonry statics was kind of fun structures. Right. Uh, and I and I was you know doing my studio project, and I was I was talking to my teacher, talking about how much I love masonry, and 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 they just told me like, no, that that will never be built, never again. Maybe somewhere where labor is so cheap that they can still build with a lot of masonry because the hourly wage of a construction worker is just so low that it's it's affordable that it's fine that is fine um, and you see a lot of nice brick architecture actually in places where wages are super low right but in canada uh no at most you can have bricks as a rain screen on the side but structural or fancy vaulting or anything no and so that that was a that was a a major moment moment of awakening for me, right? Where I learned that's a good teacher, everybody. That's a good teacher, and I learned that there's an economics to architecture, right? Like things aren't made of glass, concrete, and steel because that's what the values are for some reason, and why people have those values it's rather than finding thing. traditional architecture more more valuable. Like why isn't brick is nicer than? Than concrete masonry blocks. So why isn't it brick? Why isn't it, you know, granite instead of concrete masonry units? Mm-hmm. It's not values. It's not ideology. That was that was basically the end of my. It's architecture. not crazy architects. It's not crazy. That was basically the end of my career as an architect. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, 
I guess I can't design what I like or I have to figure out what I can design. And I, I was, it was more aesthetic at the time than, and I, I basically just switched to trying to understand this problem more. Like, right. no, okay, I need to actually understand what's going on in architecture. Like what is architecture even if it's not about these cultural assumptions or, or kind of a historical ideas of what is nice or what is good. This never, this never happened to, uh, no one, no one told Christopher Alexander the story about brick <laughs> when he was uh, at Cambridge years ago. Well, um, you didn't, I, I guess like you don't ask a positive, positivist philosopher, you go, go find a Marxist and ask them for the answer yeah. and they'll tell you and they will tell you. Yeah. Yes. Save, save the rest of us a lot of trouble. <laughs> Uh, Nathan J. Robinson is kind of self-aware of, uh, of 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 the issue and kind of self-conscious. So, like, yeah. he like, at the end of this uh, "When Is Revolution Coming to Architecture" article, he talks about how the right wing basically has the exact same position as him, <laughs> right? And he kind of realizes it. Talks right. about like it's it's a shame that when these issues are only brought by brought up by the right wing, it's kind of there's kind of a dominant real conservative trend. And it's not no surprising that social reactionaries uh, have a kind of uh, nostalgia, backward-looking uh, taste uh, in forms, in aesthetics in general, and blah blah blah. They talk like that. Kind of they invest with their, with, they invest these forms and with their as symbols of their reactionary politics. And then um, he talks about Trump's order for make federal buildings beautiful again. And then he talks about some of these examples. Like he says, at its worst, neoclassical nostalgia gives us the horrifying McMansion. Mm. Well documented in the brilliant McMansion Hell blog by Kate Wagner. McMansions are what happens when you have too much money and think the more Corinthian columns you put on your house, the fancier it is. Right. The most extreme example, whatever, that doesn't matter. Um, it's, it's a Florida. <laughs> the most extreme example is in Florida. Yeah. It says, it's perfectly understandable to me that the right has given words like nostalgia, history, culture, and tradition a bad name so that some cannot even hear them without shuddering a little. For many of the people who use these terms, they connote a vision that is ugly, fake, and deeply racist. I am not surprised then that leftists tend to prefer brutalism to McMansions. Yeah, that's the, and that's the essential false choice. Yeah, this is the fundamental problem then with everything then he goes on to saying and he also talks by the way about uh prince charles's uh, leon career oh yeah town yeah yeah um these images it's like why do people wear jeans why do like ordinary working people wear like jeans t-shirts hoodies sweatpants why don't they wear like hand-tailored suits and like silk neckties <laughs> i just don't understand it i, I don't know yeah. why that is yeah he says Prince Charles has been a vocal opponent of contemporary architecture and built a town that architecture critics blasted as an embarrassing anachronism and attempt to return to an imaginary, idyllic past. And then he puts his voice into it, in parentheses. Though it's actually kind of cool, <laughs> with a wonderfully crazy and unpredictable street layout that makes it, at the very least, not boring. Right, right. <laughs> So he actually genuinely likes William Creers and Prince Charles's Poundbury, um, which it's, is like the, I think what 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 I think of Poundbury. My problem with Poundbury, apart from the structural issues of it being just like 
yeah. impossible to do proper uh, a, a, a city that serves necessarily the, the needs of today like that, uh, unless it's for uh, a, a kind of upper middle class people exclusively and yeah. their occupations. Uh, it's that it seemed fucking incredibly boring. Well, yeah, I was going to say, like, and him saying, at least it's not boring. This is what all contemporary architecture hack architects say about their work. Exactly. It's bad. The building is bad. People don't like to use it, but at least it's interesting. Yes. This is the quintessential neo-avant-garde neo -avant argument. argument. Yeah. So they're all just debating the In question. In fact, there, of, there's even a trend that's like, in order to be interesting, it must be bad. Right, right. That, that There is that yeah. thing there. Like, in, the badness is the interesting. Like it's exposing the tensions and contradictions and et cetera of our time by, by being incredibly uncomfortable. But isn't our society uncomfortable? So yeah, our yeah, building yeah. is really just bringing home the message to the masses of how uncomfortable our uh, life is in the contemporary city. And it's really creating a sense of detachment and of like Brechtian estrangement. Yeah, from this is the, kind of... This is a contemporary neo-avant-garde well, argument. Well, this was, this was the argument that they they quote uh, Eisenman had, had yeah. made in the, yeah. in the debate with Christopher yeah. Alexander. And it's the argument uh, Liebeskin makes about his... Yeah. That, that, you know, this fancy cladding is is representing the crisis of modernity. Right, right. So uh, he acknowledges that the right has his position and that he has the position of the right. But unlike Leon Creer, who makes a much more compelling argument on the, the indirect and complex relationship between architectural forms and political content, and that oversimplifying that relationship is not smart, Leon Creer is convincing and smart and cultured in making this argument. Uh, Nathan J. Robinson is completely incapable of, he acknowledges that he's saying the same thing that the right does, but he cannot establish any difference. Mm. He doesn't He doesn't really establish a difference? He cannot say, he's, all he's really saying is, but the left should be making, should be able to make this point as well. He doesn't say what this the is, difference is between tra the, the concept of tradition in the right and the left. Like, I can talk for about some, that. For, so, for someone, yeah, who's, one of their main lines of political commentary and critique is like left-right alliance. Yes. And like red-brown yeah. whatever, or yeah. like horseshoe whatever. Yeah. This is a remarkable uh, Isn't twist. It? Isn't it? <laughs> he cannot say, why is it okay? What's different about his defense of yeah. uh, traditional forms yeah. from Trump's defense of traditional forms? He can't yeah. say. He doesn't have an answer to this question. Uh, he, he all his and the, because the underlying problem is exactly the same, he just wants everything to be. He just wants the entire city to be built for the ruling class, and everybody and he doesn't be the want to class. think. And everyone, yeah. why the, isn't the everybody a ruling, the ruling exactly. class? Exactly, he's a lefty because he thinks everyone should be a ruling class, right? Right, which is the paradigmatic form of liberal. Uh, the liberal uh, that, that, that's the liberal perspective yeah we'll elevate everybody to the middle class in social democratic terms yeah uh, and we'll eliminate the ruling class that way yeah yeah i i mean i think to kind of like i don't know not be quite so harsh maybe in how we conclude this is not entirely his fault that his argument is so bad this is this is the the quality of the debate in architecture often so people who are coming at it from outside, they're encountering a lot of like a pretty weak debate to begin with. 
And then they're just throwing, they're just shooting from the hip some like yeah. takes that they feel like are just common sense and why isn't it, you know? So, I mean, modernism is un- misunderstood and mischaracterized structurally, yeah. systematically. In the discipline. In the discipline. Yeah. So it's not surprising that someone outside the discipline yeah. Would, yeah. would get that. Yeah, this is an important right? take for us. Uh, a lot of the answers to him in the Twitters yeah. is you don't know anything about architecture, you should stop talking about it. Yeah. Why is this guy who is so good on other stuff so bad when it comes to architecture? Right. That's not a good enough answer because architecture is terrible on architecture yes. as well. Yes. Architecture doesn't know shit about architecture. Right. Like the, the established historiography of the discipline establishes the fundamental errors on which this guy is yeah. uh, kind of building his bullshit on. Yeah. Yeah, and we and we don't. This is something that we're working on a lot right now. Actually, like we're we're not making a claim that like trust the experts. No, don't, not at all. But we I, we we would say in here we would agree with him saying yeah. don't trust the experts. The quote unquote experts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or what a contemporary expert yeah. means yeah. in in this political economy. Yeah, and I think that even the way I mean, this f- debate functions basically as a. Uh, brutalism versus traditionalism those right. are the two yeah the two options yeah and most of the examples they talk about are i mean the housing example is is the most you know kind of like revealing self-own even yeah. including that example yeah. yeah because otherwise they're just talking about you know bad american brutalism and like some some contemporary neo-brutalism right. and it's all just it's all just you know prestige programs with heavy aesthetic brutalism. Yeah. Um, so, Which is uh, precisely the postmodern transition. Yeah. It is fundamentally programmatic. Yeah. It stops yeah. being about the apartment building and starts being about the museum, which is just the modern yeah. instantiation of what used to be the palace and the, uh, the, the cathedral for increasing land values in a certain area of town yeah. so that the postmodern private, private real estate housing can pop up around it. Yeah, and there was a there was a culturalization of modernism that happened along a yes. couple, couple different lines. Exactly. Like from... The international style of uh, sure. uh, Johnson, whatever, to um, yeah. to brutalism in the more yeah. French style, yeah. or whatever. So just like so modernism is, yeah. and brutalism on aesthetic terms is not good, is not enough. good enough. No, and I and mean I like I'm not I'm not we we are not attached to these forms. I, I like yeah. modernism and brutalism in aesthetic terms, but I can like decenter myself into right. like right. no like, what's important about this. It's not how it looks. Yeah, and that I like it. Uh, there, I, 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 there is a, a historical relationship on why it looks like that to solve those social problems, to have those social programs. Yeah. Um, that may not be nets, like automatically, directly uh, the same thing today anymore, but it doesn't matter. The point is we need those social programs. Yeah. And we need, and what, and we we need a modernist principle of how to give them form, even yeah. if the form is not the same anymore. It, that's completely relevant to me. Yeah. I mean, it's not completely relevant again because I like the form, but decenter myself as an architect <laughs> and center the people. Yeah, yeah the people yeah. will decide, and that means centering <laughs> what the political economy of the production of architecture is, yeah. and how that functions. Yeah, that's fundamentally what becomes part of the part of what architects are thinking about and doing with right. modernism. That's the core of modernism yeah. historically. What makes it even though problematic and sharing contradictions with For sure. whatever, that's that's the crucial point. Yeah. And that's what we think is important about it. Yeah. And what needs to be understood, regardless of what aesthetic terms it's expressed in, as we yeah. covered 
you know, let the people have prefabricated columns. Exactly. But the Again, prefabrication Ricardo point Buffil. is central. <laughs> yeah. We're not saying let the people have handcrafted uh, Corinthian capitals yes. on their bedposts. No. And on their like shower handles. That would be a terrible idea. <laughs> okay. Well, sorry, Nathan, to pile on like that. But uh, um, we, we'd uh, obviously be, be happy to, uh, to have Nathaniel on to talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good idea. Let's try that. Yeah, that'd be fun. Um, there's probably a lot of things we actually agree on. Send him an on. email. Dear Nathaniel, <laughs> we have a Red Brown Alliance architecture podcast. <laughs> <laughs> And like brutalism, would you like to come and talk to us about it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, that's it for today, right? Yeah. Okay, we'll be back uh, hopefully with our with our serious labor discussion mm -hmm. uh, soon. Yeah, I mean, I hopefully as soon as they're done uh, with the like bureaucratic rigmarole <laughs> of uh, of actually taking care of all the stuff to make the union official and yeah when, when they have time and yeah space yeah, to yeah. think about it yeah, as you might calculate it's quite complicated um we'll have that interview but uh, yeah like in in the meantime we just do fill our episodes like this <laughs> 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 which probably are more less serious but more funny uh, i don't know um yeah so uh see you soon in the next episode uh support us on patreon www.patreon.com slash streetsweeperpod that, that sounded <laughs> tacky radio voice, I like that alright, yeah and uh, we'll see you soon Yeah. till next time bye bye